Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Mizzou Sports Podcast, presented by the Columbia Daily Tribune. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Mizzou Sports Podcast. My name is Eric Blum, breaking down Mizzou sports with you every week here on the show. Joining me as always is the Tribune's sports editor, Chris Kwasinski. How are you doing, Chris? Today it's good. It's a good week. It's a fun week. It is a fun week. It was not a fun week last week for Mizzou. I did make the trip to Lexington and Mizzou did lose 35-28. to 28. Mizzou is down three, excuse me, uh, two touchdowns at three different points in that game. Let's break down this game for people who didn't see it first, Chris. Where do, where do you want to start with that? Well, let's start at the key moment for me in the first half, which was uh, when J.C. Carlisle got that fumble uh, right at the end of the half where it was about to be 28-7, to but a fumble recovery, which leads to an offensive drive, a sustained offensive drive, mind you, that goes all the way down for a touchdown. Yeah, that, that was huge. I mean, so J.C. Carlisle has essentially played five quarters this season because uh, the first half of the Central Michigan game, he was out because of the ejection at the end of last year in Mississippi State. So he played the fourth, third and fourth quarter against Central Michigan. Then he plays the first and second against Kentucky. So in the first four quarters of the season, essentially, he has three caused three turnovers. He, had, he has two picks and a forced fumble. And, I mean, he single-handedly kept Mizzou in that game at some point. I mean, Steve Wilkes called him you know, the spark of the defense the other day, and it's like, I'm just thinking, like, how bad does that game get without J.C. Carlisle's influence on Saturday? Oh, it's, it's terrible. I mean, it's it's a blowout. And th- those are those kinds of moments where you think back at a game and be like, all right, this is, I don't want to say like, oh, it's the key moment because they ended up not winning the game. But I mean, it would have been a lot worse had he not made that play. Had a, it, going down 20, 28 to 7 at the end of the half, maybe you muster a touchdown as 28-14. But at that point, you're deflated. The offense is deflated. They're, they're frantic trying to do something. You don't, you don't know what happens after that. Right. And, and everything's appropriate with the proper context and i don't want to oversell this kid but jc got here only last year he's from the orlando area and essentially like he's a one-for-one replacement to tyree gillespie i think he plays a lot different they play the same position but they he plays a lot different tyree was more so physical and wasn't all that great i don't want to say he wasn't all that great in pass coverage because he still was a fourth round draft choice to the las vegas raiders but you could tell the you know just the physical part of the game is where he thrived and was one of the best Safeties, maybe since the days of Pig Brown at Mizzou, are really just doing that. JC seems to be more of a more complete player where he has that aspect, but also more in the pass game can kind of dominate there too. And it's been obvious from the jump that this kid has the world of potential. Like we thought Martez Manuel might have been one of the stars of the defense, and he might be the vocal leader over there, but he's not doing it alone. It's very clear that J.C. Carlisle very much has an influence on how that team is doing back there right now. Yeah, and when you look at a safety, too, I mean, you're talking about uh, it, when you rank positions of defense, maybe safety's not the most important part, but it's up. It's either number two or number three. Like, not yeah. only that, but a great safety is what makes or breaks team. I mean, you, you think back to some of the great Alabama teams, the defense that they had, and obviously I'm not trying to compare Mizzou's defense to Alabama, but, I mean, you have guys like Eddie Jackson, Landon Collins, uh, Ha Clinton Dix, and that kind of stuff. <clears throat> that, that, yeah, that, that it's it's i mean when your first name's haha it's pretty funny but uh but um but no seriously but like there's these are great safeties that short up the back end of the defense but also knew when to go up and make play up in the box or you know knew how to read a quarterback knew how to be dangerous back there too and, and those are game changers former washington redskin haha clinton dix i think he played for chicago too didn't he oh yeah so both of our favorite teams. And hashan clinton dix yes. uh, meaning meaning not washington football team at this point but you know uh, well it'll be the washington red either hawks or tails or wolves coming up in the next year they, they're absolutely they have to keep the red part of it but that's all a different discussion um so yeah but i mean those Alabama teams were complete from start to finish. I mean, you look at just just how the, you win at that level, and Mizzou has several steps to get there. Let's make that very clear. Right. But 
building with players like this to show, okay, you can be the successful under drinkers at the University of Missouri. Like, having a guy like Nick Bolton was good, and Drinkwitz is, I think, the 2020 NFL draft, Missouri had a few players drafted, but none of them played under Drinkwitz, and Jordan Elliott and Alberto. Uh, last year, when you have five guys in your first year, that's good, but none of them are recruited by Drinkwitz. None of them were, I mean, played for more than a year under Drinkwitz. Like, Nick Bolton was a second-round draft pick, and it was Gillespie, Roundtree, Bledsoe, and one other I'm forgetting off the top of my head, and I can't believe I'm, oh, Larry Borum, with your favorite world-famous Chicago Bears. Yeah, boy. Yeah. But now that you have a guy who Drinkwitz helped bring here in J.C. Carlisle, Drinkwitz has elevated, you know, this is a guy that can almost, he's as good of a recruiter for you as anything you can do on the circuit. Like, this is a guy who adds so much legitimacy to what his process is. This is a guy who came in at corner, but yet is now thriving and looks like a legitimate NFL player at safety. It's also one of those things that, that you have to bring up when you talk about a coaching staff, mainly because it, yeah, you you have an eye for the players like that. But it's also the other thing to say, like, okay, we have a great player, but where else can we play them? And where maybe you're full up at one position, maybe you're full up at cornerback, like you saw with all the transfers coming in this year from Tulsa. But you have to find a good place for them, and you got to give credit to the coaching staff, especially Steve Wilkes. I know a lot of people want to talk about Steve's defense from. Uh, last week and then the struggles ahead but i mean you have to give him credit for putting players in the right positions yeah no for for sure look at chris abram's drain you know i i think that and one of the plays that mizzou was stayed in it with kentucky was that blocked field goal from blaze aldridge and i think chris abrams thought he was going to scoop and score and so did the entire kentucky defense until just the ball just bobbled on him but he fell on it and gave mizzou ideal field position and and that's one of the things i mean drinkwitz's big task right now with missouri is keeping the fans patient enough to the point where he has time to build this team when you look at gary pinkle's first four seasons i mean he they, they didn't go really that great i mean i think maybe max seven wins in any year you know and, and that was one of the big claims from barry odom when right before he got fired was that in his first four years he had won more games in his first four years than any coach not named warren powers and that was only going 25 and 25 Drinkwitz is a little bit ahead of that pace or should be and yet, you know, it seems like there's a little bit of impatience. I mean, yet yeah, th- there's this generation of what are you doing for me now and, and very much digital sphere of college football. But yet Drinkwitz has inherited a lot of problems that, are, that some are self-created, but a lot are not. And some are going to be there for a lot of Missouri coaches no matter what. I'm just building a winner in Columbia. And that's going to take time when you're talking about overthrowing a Georgia who might win a national title this year. You're talking about overthrowing a Florida who's top 10 consistently in college football and has a way better history. You don't have the Steve Spurrier or the Tim Tebow or the Percy Harvin or I can go on and on and on about just how the swamp is just better revered than in Columbia. Sorry, it's true. But there are ways of doing that and one of the ways is time and Drinkwitz if anything was clear from Saturday it's that Drinkwitz needs more time to build an SEC contender than year two. It could happen in year three, but it's clear there's still some steps that need to be taken in Columbia. That's not a bad thing, but maybe a little bit of patience might not be the worst thing in Columbia. No, and and this is something that I was kind of curious about, just seeing a lot of uh, a lot of reactions to the to the to the loss. People being like, oh, "Well, we're six and six season. All this, we're only 500. Yeah, blah blah blah." But it, to me, it's it's crazy because you look at some of the some of the coaches that have come in instantly have made success at a program. And I mean, the the most recent one I can think of is last year and in the last couple of years with Mac Brown coming back to UNC and people are like, "Well, look at look at him and what he's done." And you should be able to do that right away. But that's Mac Brown. Like he's a good a great recruiter. He's a good coach. Obviously, starting off a, with a loss of Virginia Tech this year, kind of tempers those expectations. But I mean, when you you also look at someone like Dan Mullen, I mean, replacing. Uh, Jim McElwain right at, at yeah. Florida and uh, a guy that came in ran a successful SEC program comes back to revive that and he has and, and I mean does Florida is Florida in the spot it's at if the athletic director and the administrators there don't give him a little bit of patience to just kind of rebuilding and just kind of turning it around I mean he might be I mean when you when you talk about the coaches in the SEC obviously Nick Saban's number one Kirby's number two but I mean there's a legitimate chance for him to be number three and uh, to to me, when you think about it, th- that patience could go a long way because I mean, Drinkwitz has had success in the past too. I would pu- I put Jimbo Fisher three, Dan Mullen four, as of right this moment, just because you can't put down a former national championship head coach that far, even though he's in a in a new league. I mean, Lane Kiffin's got to be right there too. 
And But you look at what's different about Ole Miss is that he had kind of more time, you know, to build with the past and it wasn't a complete overhaul when Matt Luke was fired compared to what happened with Barry Odom in the exact same off exact same off season. I mean, we thought Lane Kiffin might have been coming here at one time, but that didn't end up happening. Uh, but now more, more so going back to Kentucky, yeah, and, and I mentioned Missouri fought in the game, and that was a big word from Drinkwitz yesterday at his post-game, or sorry, pre, you know, midweek press conference of just how much the team fought and how much in Missouri you know, battled back against Kentucky. How much validity there is to what Drinkwitz is saying there and how much you know, do you think Drinkwitz kind of has to say that when you feel the frustration and the disappointment more so there and it's a cover and a smokescreen for that while he works on kind of other things, the, the whole David Copperfield threat. I want you looking over here when with the, the other hand behind my back, I'm fixing it in this way, you know, kind of deal. No, yeah, I think you can go both ways with this, especially one, it's true that, you know, you have that whole, the trick of like, hey, look over here, like we fought, we, it was great, but you can't ignore the fact that you give up basically, what, 300 yards on the ground? It, more than. More than that, yeah, like, it, so... Uh, taking stock in that is one thing, but it's an, it's another thing to realize. Like we just talked about a little bit before, they could have been down twenty eight seven, maybe even worse should at halftime. Should have been, yeah. Like, it, but the team found a way to rally to the point where they were just down one score, and in the second half too, when when Kentucky sees pretty solid control of the game, Mizzou found a way to stick in it, and. It's more ways than one, too. Obviously, the first half was J.C. Carlisle making those plays on defense. And then the second half, it was just you know controlling the ball offensively, getting in the end zone, making the plays you had to, being so much better on third down this week than against Central Michigan. Yep. It's the it's the learning curve and the understanding. And I think that's the part where, uh, where we can have a little bit more faith in this team is like they, they found out a way, to, a way to make adjustments coming out of one third down against Central Michigan, a team where you should go arguably six for you know, six for nine if you're uh, converting third downs and that kind of stuff I mean it you should have a high percentage against those teams against Kentucky they had they had that and they had a position to win it's just Kentucky is also a really good team this year too and they can't lose they can't lose stock in the fact that you know Kentucky might be the best uh, the second best team in this in this division right now that's one of the two things I wanted to bring up before we got off this topic is number one I absolutely agree with you the Preseason SEC rankings could be wrong. I mean, I, I'd be shocked if this is not Georgia's division to lose. Beyond that, Missouri might have just lost on the road to the second-best team in the SEC this year. The rankings might go Georgia, Kentucky, Missouri, Florida, or Georgia, Kentucky, Florida, Missouri. Like the, Those are both completely still on the table. You look at how Liam Cohen, the offensive coordinator who worked under Sean McVay for the Los Angeles Rams, has come in and rejuvenated that offense that quickly with that experience on defense. That's a more complete team than we thought. Also, going over to yesterday, Drinkwitz said something that I thought was interesting, and I don't agree with him, but I'd like to explain why. He said that, you know, looking at the team, that, you know, it, it's all about a beauty contest. And I don't agree with that. It's all about a beauty contest if you lose. If, if Missouri finds a way to come down the field and they get an ugly touchdown, 35-35, they get an ugly fumble, ruski, you know, but they go on top 36-35 and they win that game, not a single person in Columbia cares about how they got to beat Kentucky on the road. How you look only matters if you lose. And to me, you know, the argument of how you look also has to do with this current age of football. You know, you look flashy. I don't think a single person in Missouri really that much cares beyond the aesthetics if Missouri is winning if Missouri looks ugly and goes 10 and 2 they're still 10 and 2 if Missouri looks pretty and goes 6 and 6 which one would you rather have that 2019 team looked pretty during that five game win streak and then looked ugly when they lost like what you got to balance that a little bit I think at the end of the day yeah looking pretty is nice Missouri has the athletes to do it but how much does that actually matter well, I mean, it, at the end of the day, it, I, I like to bring up this this comparison into, in I believe it was twenty, yeah, the twenty eighteen Northwestern Wildcats that ended up going to the Big Ten championship game, that that won the Big Ten West. I mean, when you think about it, they they struggled with Rutgers in that year, and if you go back and ask any of those Northwestern fans, I know for a fact you ask them and they say, hey, are you are you are you mad that they struggled with Rutgers? And they say, no, we beat Iowa on the road. 
Like at the end of the day, as long as you win the game, you win the game. doesn't matter how. And that's why I totally agree with your point there. It's at the end of the day. I mean, if you're going to be Kentucky, you know, 37, 35 on a weird play that ends up in a weird safety and that kind of stuff, you'll, you'll take it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll, we'll end it there. We can talk maybe a little bit more about Kentucky when we come back, but this is a good stopping point. Our special guest this week was Bennett Durando, former Missouri beat reporter with the Missourian and the Mandator, actually, and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Got a job within the USA Today Network covering Auburn, and he is our special guest this week during an FCS week, and we thought we'd bring on a former Mizzou beat writer who might be able to bring you a little bit of perspective from another place in the SEC. So without further ado, here's my interview from earlier this week with Bennett Durando. Joining the Mizzou Sports Podcast this time is the Auburn Athletic Beat Reporter at the Montgomery Advertiser, Bennett Durando. How are you doing, Bennett? I am good, Eric. It's uh, good to hear a familiar voice. <laughs> yeah, if you don't mind giving us kind of your personal Wikipedia page, not only how we know each other, but how familiar you are actually with Mizzou. Yes, so I uh, I went to the journalism school at Missouri and covered Mizzou sports for three four years, really, um, while I was there, first at the campus newspaper, The Man Eater, and then I, I started covering Mizzou wrestling and men's basketball, actually, for the campus paper, and then I went on to cover Mizzou football at the Columbia Missourian, and then at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch after that, so, um, and then after uh, school, and I finished freelancing with the Post-Dispatch for a while, I Got the job down here, and I've been in Auburn for about a month now. How is Auburn different than Columbia? It's uh, it's smaller, first of all. I, I have realized that I might have taken for granted how great a college town Columbia is, and I don't say that to knock Auburn as a college town because it's very nice, um, but you can tell that it's smaller, I think, uh, and, and it – sort of has occurred to me that, um, and I've talked with a couple other people about this too, that Columbia is almost like a small city that sort of goes hand in hand with being a college town and they sort of complement each other, whereas Auburn University really is everything here. But but it's a really nice town. I've gotten to enjoy it uh, quite a lot. There's so no knock on Auburn at all. There are Auburn fans listening to this. <laughs> no, of course. So, did Tommy Dees, our, our cross-team leader, put on the application, must have covered Mizzou football for the Missourian on the job app to be in the state of Oklahoma with hiring you and Nick Kelly? <laughs> yeah. No, isn't that it, – it's pretty uh, funny how everything came full circle with that. Nick and I, um, yeah, we, we covered that team together in 2019 at the Missourian, uh, the last year of the Barry Odom era, um, and then Nick had the – Alabama beat at the Tuscaloosa News, which is within the same Gannett blanket as the Montgomery Advertiser. He had that job a, a few months before me. So when I got this gig, uh, there were there have been uh, cracks at each other on on teams meetings and whatnot since then. So, <laughs> but he was aware of what he was doing, though. Like he he knew you two knew each other before giving you the gig, obviously. Yes. Yeah. No. Where uh, we, yeah, he knew that we were familiar with each other and uh, and that we're pretty tight. So it was it was sort of a a happy coincidence that we end up on like rival beats within the same company. That's very cool. And yeah, just for anyone listening, yeah, uh, Columbia Daily Tribune is part of the USA Today Network. Same kind of national region. Alabama is a different region than us, but they are in all in the same. USA Today Network, I guess, family or brother, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yep. Just kind of first off, just going back to Auburn for a little bit, uh, what have been your early impressions of the team? It seemed like, because I was, because Brian Harson and Eli Drinkwood spoke back-to-back pretty much at SEC Media Days, so I was there to hear him, and it just seemed like at the time, he was still, Coach Harson was still kind of fighting his footing, still trying to get things under underway in Auburn. Then he gets COVID, and it's like, this season might be over before it even starts for Auburn, but then he's had two amazing victories, albeit, I mean, you know, not the greatest competition, but just what's been kind of your impression so far? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that Auburn really is sort of the great mystery team of the SEC right now. Um, because, you know, like you said, uh, there's always an element of mystery when a new coach comes in. And Harson was at Boise State. He hasn't 
he isn't necessarily proven at like an SEC level yet. Um, and, you know, there was there were questions about his recruiting early on. Um, I think what what we've grown to see is his greatest strength is that he's a really good in-game coach. He knows how to make in-game adjustments, and he was a former quarterback at Boise State. But, uh, you know, my first couple weeks here on the beat, Harson gets COVID-19. Um, you know, there were Derek Mason, the uh, defensive coordinator, had a breakout case of COVID-19. Uh, so, you know, everything is sort of in disarray early on, and they had an open practice a week before the season that I still can't believe they held while Harson uh, was out. But, um, you know, there's sort of all these questions like, how is this mess with their game prep going into the year? And, and I think fortunately for them, uh, the first two games on the schedule might be the two easiest games on any schedule in the country because you've got Akron, um, who's one of the worst FBS teams out there. They had lost 21 straight games uh, before winning one late in the regular season last year. Um, and then Alabama State, an FCS team that's sort of mid-level. Um, so, you know, I, I guess the to credit Auburn is you've seen plenty of teams uh, these first couple weeks of the season who didn't get it done against the cupcake opponents, you know, who, who played an FCS team or – or a group of five team and flopped when they uh, weren't supposed to. And to Auburn's credit, they did everything that they were supposed to do against these two teams. They won by 50 points in the first and 62 points in the second one. They're the top scoring offense and scoring defense in the country right now. So with a big game like Penn State coming up, you you know, there's still a lot of questions and I think a sense of mystery and a lot will be revealed this weekend. But as far as the first two weeks, you know, if you're an Auburn fan, you couldn't have asked for much more. What's kind of been just the overall reception of, of Harson? Um, just kind of been down there. And I, I understand from what I, under, you know, just have heard from, you know, some of our mutual friends in the Auburn beat that Seth Nelson was either loved or, I guess, hated at times. And that's why you, you know, have a six and four season, I believe, or whatever Auburn was last year with all the things going on with COVID and still, you know, purchased a $21 million buyout you know, to bring in Brian Harson. Just what's the overall reception kind of the, I guess, for lack of a better word, ferocious fan base down there? Right. Um, you know, I, I can't speak too much to the attitude toward Malzahn just because uh, I didn't get here until well after he was gone. But but at least the sense was sort of what you said, that it was sort of a, a very love-hate kind of thing. You know, one, one thing about Malzahn that I think uh, – kept some people happy was that in the four iron bowls that Auburn hosted while he was here, Auburn won three of those four games. Uh, so, so they knew how to put on a show at home against Alabama, which is one of the most important things I have come to learn quickly, but you know, I mean, there was a lot of inconsistency. I think when you go to a national championship in game in your first season uh, and then, you know, that, that sort of sets, a bit of a, a challenging tone for the rest of your tenure. So to not repeat that over the course of the next seven years, uh, it's almost tough luck. I don't know. I, I, I think Malzahn's a good coach. Um, and as, as far as Harson, I mean, I, I think there's sort of a typical new coach enthusiasm about here, ever, about him here. I, everyone's, you know, there's always encouragement. I think, like it was the same with Drinkwitz at Mizzou last year. I think there's there's just sort of a new energy to it. Um, Harson's not the most openly charismatic person. I don't think uh, like Drinkwitz can be, but you know, he's he's sort of come in with a pretty firm uh, idea of what his values are going to be on this team. He's a player's coach. The players seem to like him a lot. And I think that's really the most important thing that's allowed the fans to warm up to him a lot more. Um, the recruiting probably needs to improve, but, but, you know, he's had some encouraging in-game coaching signs in these first couple games. And, uh, I think the jury's still out in terms of, you know, what the fan base will really think because you've got Penn State coming up and then, uh, one more easiest game and then a brutal SEC schedule. Kind of now going back to Mizzou, I mean, you so, so you covered 17, 18, 19, and 20 then 
for, uh, I guess, in Missouri. For Missouri. Yeah. So the 20, 2017, I covered a couple of football games, um, but not the entire season. And then I was fully on uh, men's basketball that season, though. That was the first Conzo Martin year with Michael Porter Jr. and all that. And then, so you were full on football, eighteen, nineteen, and twenty. After that, yes, yeah. Can I just talk to the to the highs and the lows of covering, you know, uh, Mizzou? I know, I know, I was there for some of them with that twenty nineteen year where uh, we all frantically drove back from Little Rock to Columbia <laughs> the morning after the Arkansas game. Uh, maybe just go through some of those highs and lows of being a Mizzou beat reporter those years. Yeah, no, I mean there are a lot, right? Um, it was. Uh, those last two years of the Barry Odom era were fascinating to cover because there was always sort of a sense of what could have been with those teams. That 2018 year, um, they were quite good. They were eight and four in the regular season. You had Drew Locke as a senior, um, who ended up with the Broncos. Uh, you know, they had a ton of talent on that team. Um, and eight and four is a good record but they were a couple of plays from being 10 and two that season. They had the uh, Kentucky loss that I covered um, with the, uh, it was DeMarcus Acey, I think had the pass interference uh, in the end zone that allowed the free play at the end and Kentucky won on the touchdown. Um, and then they had a sort of a debacle in South Carolina in the rain that year. Um, and so I remember that season uh, you know, they being at their bowl game and sort of thinking about how, and we're in, we're in Memphis for the Liberty Bowl here, playing Oklahoma State, and it feels like they were a couple lucky breaks or a couple more fundamentally sound plays away from being on the verge of a New Year's Six Bowl, which is crazy to think about because a year later, Barry Odom is gone. Um, and then, you know, you have the, the NCAA sanctions in 2019, and that was just a shadow it was cast over that entire season. It felt like it was looming the whole year, and it wasn't until before that last week at Little Rock that um, that it was revealed that the appeal had failed and that Mizzou was, in fact, ineligible for a bowl game. And so they win that Arkansas game. They finish 6-6, uh, six and six, but it doesn't matter. Um, and Odom gets fired that next day. I know we've talked about that. I was, I was at uh, – I went to – Little Rock Central High School the next morning before leaving town because I was like, uh, might as well see a civil rights monument before I drive back to Columbia. And that's where I started hearing that uh, it was going to be that morning that Barry was out and uh, everything sort of turned into chaos. And, you know, like you said, I think everyone was like driving back on uh, Arkansas, Northern Arkansas highways that are not the most pleasant to drive on, and it was raining, I think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> downpour. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I was I was with uh, Liam Quinn, the other Missourian football writer at the time, so fortunately we were able to take turns driving while the other would be trying to write something or uh, make calls or figure things out. But uh, that was that was quite an experience in terms of uh, Missouri journalistic educational moment um that one will always stand out and then 2020 you know um i didn't travel that year to road games but uh dealing with covid inhibited access for the first time and the first year of the Drinkwitz era um that had its highs and lows beating lsu in that crazy game beating arkansas um and then maybe there was a sense that they that mizzou should have finished a little bit better that year too uh, sort of flopping at Mississippi State at the end. But um, still, I guess when I left, there was a, a general sense of encouragement, which is what what I leave you at right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And the weird, one of the weirder parts that not a lot of people know about that 2019, I, guess, I still remember it's November 30th, 2019, is when Barry got fired. Mm-hmm. Not that I remember. That entire week was just beyond bananas, and I've talked about it a few times just about just how – little sleep I got that week with the sanctions coming down that week and Missouri basketball playing in a, in a tournament in Kansas City that week. That was also the week of Missouri volleyball making the NCAA tournament. And there's also Thanksgiving. Yeah. They all had to travel. Just That, that was the, maybe the craziest week of my professional life. But So it was raining the entire time, leaving Little Rock until getting to the Missouri border. Once we got to Branson, complete sunshine. Just like, <laughs> it, 
I don't know if this isn't a sign of irony. I don't know what is, but I'm still. I mean, I didn't get pulled over or anything, but I'm I'm impressed the time I made it back from Little Rock to Columbia, which is not a short drive, six and a half hours, and yeah. a lot. Of <laughs> just what, what do you kind of remember about just the other you know kind of parts of Columbia? Whether it's the favorite restaurant or just the favorite experience you had about just the city of Columbia in general. Man, there are so many uh, things that I already missed. Um, I love the Hitsville building in Columbia with Uprise Bakery and the record store and um, Ragtag Theater. Some of the, like, three of my favorite places to go all, like, bunched into one small building. Um, you know, I just – I miss being at the Missourian Newsroom, which was right sort of at the edge of downtown and and at campus, which was sort of tucked in at that perfect spot and being able to – uh, you know, walk to a restaurant or a bar after um, after getting done with work there uh, with friends. You know, there's just I'll always I'll always cherish those Columbia memories. I think, and I was glad I got to have some extra time uh, after I graduated to to spend there. But uh, great college town. It was always fun to cover games there at Faro, and uh, you know, hopefully I'll be back at some point. <laughs> Yeah, the zoo actually plays at Auburn next year. It's not it, – the game here was, I believe, 2017, your freshman year, when Carrion Johnson had five touchdowns. Uh, but the yeah. zoo's cross, non-traditional crossover game, should nothing change, those women in Texas, is at Jordan-Hare next year. Um, just, you know, now that you're no longer covering Missouri, just just what do you think kind of just the, of the trajectory of the programs now that you're not kind of covering them? You know, how much sense of optimism is there, do you think, from a non-biased perspective – you know, just looking at Mizzou football, maybe basketball too. You know, you're, I know I noted you a little well. You're you're from St. Louis, so you know kind of the history beyond you being a student and a reporter. So, just what what are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's undeniable uh, just how much Drinkwitz has stirred the fan base. I think, right? Like that that's been the thing that stands out. And even talking with other uh, reporters in Auburn. Um, you know, there's sort of a they'll ask, you know, how what what was Drinkwitz like to cover? Um, you know, he's he sort of just has that that even keeled guy kind of persona, and uh, you know, he's got that charisma. So I, I think he's won over people, and that's what's allowing him to win over recruits so well. This is I no matter what happens, I think on the field this season, um, the most encouraging thing for Mizzou is just how well the recruiting has been under Drinkwitz because they weren't getting guys uh, under Barry Odom, especially in St. Louis. Um, you know, that, that was one of his big faults. And I think Odom's actually a pretty good defensive coach. We're seeing what he's doing at Arkansas now uh, with the upset of Texas last week. Um, but, you know, I, I think Drinkwitz as a head coach just makes more sense. And it was, uh, you know, as scrambled of a hiring process as it was for him, uh so far he's sort of has been all you could have asked for to go five and five in an all SEC uh is pretty great and you know to be where he's at with recruiting is is really promising right now. So I don't know. I in terms of the future, I I guess I I think the common I, I don't there's sort of just a tendency to jump to conclusions based on a record and a first season or two and I really think that a coach needs at least four years usually because you got to see uh you know what what they're doing with the guys that they bring into the program right so um you know I think it'll be a matter of patience um for them but but Missouri has a chance to uh hang right in there I think at least for now with Kentucky maybe around that third best team in the SEC East position and you know who knows if they'll have a chance to move up eventually. The other funny thing is that uh, Drinkwitz is part of the uh, part of an Auburn coaching tree, part of the Gus Malzahn coaching tree and the Harson tree. Uh, so, and and when he just when he first got hired at Mizzou, in his introductory press conference, two of the coaches who he sort of credited the most with his offensive philosophy were. Um, the spread that Malzahn runs sort of mixed with some of the more pro style uh, different personnel looks that Harson gives. So it's sort of funny that those two guys, um, the before and after at Auburn where I'm covering now uh, had such an impact on Drinkwitz. For sure. For sure. 
Well, that was Bennett Durando, now working in the Montgomery Advertiser. For those of you who don't know him, Bennett, where can they find you online and read your work? Yeah, MontgomeryAdvertiser.com. Um, and then I, you know, I'm usually tweeting out articles and everything that's just at my name, at Bennett Durando. So uh, uh, follow, please subscribe, make my bosses like me, um, you know, all that good stuff. <laughs> all right. Thanks again, Bennett. Great to catch up with you, man. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, yeah, thanks a lot, Eric. Great to be here. We would like to thank our sponsors for the Columbia Daily Tribune's Mizzou Sports Podcast, University of Missouri Healthcare. University of Missouri Healthcare is proud to be the official sponsor of MU Athletics. Blue Events. Let Blue create the perfect event. Their passion for food, service, and presentation ensures that you will have a seamless and memorable event, no matter the size. They will work with you to bring your vision to life. Phyllis Nichols State Farm Insurance. There when things go wrong, here to help life go right. The Mizzou Sports Podcast is brought to you by Zaxby's, the home of handmade-to-order chicken, salads, and more than a dozen mild-to-wild sauces. Stop by your neighborhood Zaxby's today. Follow Mizzou football with the Tribune's Tiger Extra newsletter. Sign up at ColumbiaTribune.com slash Tiger Extra for stories, galleries, and podcasts in your inbox every Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. So, John, question. With Auburn firing Gus Malzahn, it leaves Ed Ogeron as the SEC's only coach who has beaten Nick Saban. Who's going to be the next SEC coach to beat Saban? Well, I don't think he'll be the guy that a lot of people think he will be. Jimbo Fisher, Texas A&M. I like Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss. He almost beat Saban last year, and he almost beat Saban when he was at Tennessee. Fisher promised he was going to thump Saban's rump whenever Alabama comes to College Station. I think he's got a shot. He improved Texas A&M to 9-1 last year. He's got a national championship to his name. If Haynes King is the real deal, he's got an early opportunity in October to beat Nick Saban. Look at Saban's track record for losses. It's usually to a great quarterback. Cam Newton, Johnny Manziel, or Joe Burrow. Matt Corral at Ole Miss, I think, could be the best quarterback in the league. I'm Blake Topmeyer, and this is SEC Football Unfiltered, a new podcast from the USA Today Network. Each week, we'll discuss the hottest topics that matter to the passionate fan bases of the SEC. I've covered the SEC for eight years. As for my co-host, longtime sports columnist John Adams. Let's just say he's got a few decades on me. Not as many decades as some people think. Contrary to popular opinion, I did not cover General Neyland, but I did interview Bear Bryant and I interviewed Nick Saban and I covered Archie Manning and Peyton Manning. More insightful interview, John. Bear Bryant, Archie Manning, Steve Spurrier, or Johnny Majors. Gotta go with Steve Spurrier there. He's the great quipster. SEC Football Unfiltered debuts this summer. Let John and I be your tour guides from the season opener through the national championship. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. This game week, uh, Missouri just plays Southeast Missouri State from the SCS level in Cape Girardeau. The Red Hawks are 0-2. Missouri is 1-1. Where do you, where does this matchup kind of start for you if you actually want to take a serious look at this? Because full, full bore here, I mean, Missouri did play them two years ago, and that Missouri team wasn't that great. But by FCS standards, that SEMO team was pretty good. They were ranked 19th in the country when they played Missouri, and they ended up making the FCS playoffs and winning an FCS playoff game on the road. Missouri ended up 6-6 six and six in the SEC. Missouri beat them 50 to nothing, scored in the first on all three phases of the game in the game's first nine minutes. Rashad Floyd returned a punt for a touchdown. Kel Garrett had a pick six. And Tyler Beatty, who I'm pretty sure we'll get to throughout the rest of the show, caught a screen pass for a touchdown. Where do you want to break this down? You just have to start with, honestly, you just have to start with Drinkwitz taking this seriously. I, I mean, we've seen seven FCS teams beat FBS teams eight. this year. Eight? It's eight. It's eight? Yeah. Oh, I missed one from this past week. Drinkwitz said seven, it's eight. Okay, so with with eight teams that have lost to the F- FCS schools, it, him taking it seriously tells you that this is that they're they're not going to lose this game, and there's no way that they lose this game, and and it quite simply comes down to just just make a few plays, to just trust your talent because this team is still immensely more talented than Semo, and this isn't anything just bad to say about Semo, but I mean they they got boat raced by Sam Houston State, the defending national champion with the FCS, and. Southern Illinois. Granted, those were two top team, top ten teams in the FCS. But if those top ten teams in the FCS are, you know, beating down Semo, then Mizzou should, in turn, do the same. And I feel like they will. Yeah, that that's one of the things about Drinkwitz to me is like, 
a couple of us beat reporters were talking before Drinkwitz's press conference started yesterday. And it was like, you know, how is he going to pitch to us that this game is something he's taking seriously? And then he did it. And we're like, oh, okay, maybe this game does matter. It's like this is just not a, just a tune-up for Boston College. You know, he Drinkwitz brought up very much internally. It's it really is nothing about Semo. And, and in turn, he kept bringing up that they have good players, which is true. And he kept bringing up that they have blocked 12 total kicks over the last three years, which is true. But that you're blocking kicks against FCS teams. I digress. But uh, you, you look at just the examples of how, like he said, we haven't been able to stop the run against anybody. And one of the only players who's pretty good is Hess. I don't even know his first name. The Gino. Gino Hess. G- like Pats and Geno's, like spelled like that, or Gino Marchetti, the old Baltimore Colt. I believe the old Baltimore Colt. I think you're yeah. wrong, actually. I think it's like Pat and Gino's, like the cheesesteak, because it's an E, not an I. Oh, oh the I, difference. Did, I didn't know about Gino Marchetti, but we're good. Okay, yeah, he, he actually owns a burger chain in the Baltimore area. So di- di- different story for a different time. Anyway, <laughs> it was completely digressed here. Um, but yeah, Gino Hess is one of the, I think, as an FCS, like, honorable mention, all-American guy, same thing as Missouri offensive liner, lineman Connor Wood, and he moved up. So that's a very capable guy. Their quarterback, C.J. Ogbana, was the national champion at Hutch at CC last year, the junior college national champion for football, and then went and now starting at the FCS level. So they have capable players. I mean, last year, I mean, a couple of years ago, I think it was, I forget the guy's name, it was something Alston, or Aaron Alston is a wide receiver then, who was an FCS all-American, then caught one ball two years ago, and he's back. Just, they have capable players, but make sure Missouri goes through this, goes through just the the trials and tribulations, and, and gets their game plan on track. Like, okay, we can stop a team on the ground. Okay, we can convert third downs. Okay, we're gonna have big plays. We're gonna c- prevent just the defense from running all over us. That's Missouri has not proven that yet. And I think Steve Wilkes took it upon himself this week, which is why he took so much of the onus on himself. And even a guy like Blaze Aldridge, I asked him yesterday. You know, you've mentioned in the past, your your time here is short. Does that make how you play over the last two weeks? You know, does that does that bring credence to how you played over the last two weeks with you know a record of six tackles for a loss against Central Michigan, three and a half sacks, and he blocks the kick against Kentucky, and he's like, and he starts off with an apology. Yeah, I'm like, why are you? What? Why are players apologizing to me? First case cook on the Zoom, and I was like, that's not what I was getting at. And then I asked him a pretty good question to build him up, and he's apologizing to me. I'm like, do I just make people apologize? I don't know. I don't know. But at the end of the day, I think that's just kind of the attitude that Steve Wilkes and maybe even Coach Drinkwitz to a certain degree are bringing this defense of just the ultimate accountability. If we lose, it's on all of us. And so when a player says, I apologize, it's not because I played bad. I think it's more so because we lost. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And and at the end of the day, this is that that kind of mentality feeds perfectly into a, into a SEMO week where you have nothing to gain from this game if you're Mizzou. You have literally zero to gain from this game. SEMO is everything to gain. Because if you're SEMO, you gain notoriety. You beat you beat Mizzou. You gain the Mizzou, the the recruiting presence. People know who you are. You're on ESPN for a whole week. Like you, if Mizzou has nothing to gain out of this game, so you had you just and you usually just win by going through the motions too. You know, just going through the motions, just doing just doing things technically sound from start to finish. Don't get injured. You know, don't do anything flashy or dumb. And you usually come out with a win. And just kind of doing the procedural things might be cool, a nice reset for this team. You know, a team a team that. This spent the last couple of weeks apologizing. Oh, we missed this. Oh, we're technically not sound here. This there. This gives them a good way to reset. Say, hey, this is the technique. This is the formation. Let's go. It, it, not not to downplay Simo, but practice it against Simo because your second stringers could probably beat this team. And that's something Drake said too. Is like he's like this is not open tryouts. It's not miracle grow. And like yeah, I understand that. And I, and, and I think that like this is a good way of just again testing out his system. I mean, yes, you're practicing it against Simo. And let's not pretend like Simo doesn't have capable players. It's just capable at the level of stopping Mizzou. No, we saw East Tennessee State take it to Vanderbilt. This is possible, you know, but not probable. And I, and I don't want to overstate Simo or understate Simo. And that's tough because we're dealing with a team who wants to push for an SEC East title against a team who just got boat raced by two in the FCS. At the end of the day, you know, Southern Illinois is fine. Sammy's State's fine. It's just a different talent level and gap when you're talking about the SEC. I mean, the SEC is just far and beyond the best athletes in the country should play here. You know, that's why when you see the best prospects from all over the country, most of them 
with those premier prospects have an SEC school, if not, if not two, in their top group. That's just because you want to play in the best league in America. And that type of competition gets you ready for actually making that money before NIL at the top level. Before then, the, the level of athletes that come from the SEC that make it to the NFL, you have the best chance of making it out of one of these 14 schools than at any other school in the country, save Notre Dame, Ohio State, Oregon, Michigan, Clemson, Rutgers, just kidding. Um, <laughs> Hey, you, you joke about that, but I think there was a stat a couple years ago. Like Rutgers has had a player in the Super Bowl for like the last like five or six years, but that was a couple years ago. Okay, fair enough. You know, but but you get the point of like that. Other than that, the top upper echelon of college football, you get there by going to the SEC, and so not this in the FCS because we've both been around FCS football. There's great athletes there. It's just a difference at the SEC level. Uh, I have a friend who does kind of spreads and stuff. He put the spread at 33 this weekend. All four of us in our picks who do it, our managing editor, Kevin Grayler, our digital editor, Gabby Velasquez, and the two of us easily took Missouri with a 33-point spread, which would be if SEMO scores a field goal and Missouri gets five touchdowns, SEMO covers the spread. Like, that, that, would, that would be 35-3 and that would be 32. Anything larger than that, Missouri pushes or wins. So it's going to be a long long day for SEMO most likely or you know and looking at some of these upsets it usually happens with a great quarterback you look at kind of the classic example to put the FCS on the map was Appalachian State beating Michigan and that's a really an outlier example but you look at what Appalachian State former drink with school had coming at the FCS level at the time they had Armani Edwards who won the Walter, Walter Payton award I think three or two years in a row which is the FCS equivalent of the Heisman and then they had just won three national titles in a row before they went to the big house and beat Michigan. Like, that was a team well-prepared. When the FCS upsets usually happen, either the team's quarterback or there's somebody at a skill position on offense who is NFL good. Where's that guy on SEMO? I mean, Geno Hess is good. Is the NFL starting good? I, I, that remains to be seen. Probably not. But they probably need an offensive line, too, and they don't yes. have that. So, But, I mean, kind of putting in one more piece of perspective here. Sam Houston State is the closest thing, in my opinion, besides North Dakota State, to an, an FBS school right now, okay. the FCS. Okay. Sam Houston State could be in the FBS by the end of the decade, maybe even sooner than that, with the with how the WAC wants to realign and become an FBS conference. That's if the American doesn't beat them to them. I, I think they might be a big candidate to replace the Cincinnati's of the world, you know? But that that's a... That's a whole other conversation. Right, but, right. And, uh, but, but all the saying, that's basically an FBS team that beat SEMO by three or four touchdowns. So yeah. uh, it was it was 52-14, so that is 36 points. It's 38 points. My, my math is obviously terrible. So uh, that's five touchdowns and a field goal. But anyway, go on. <laughs> but but, uh, but they, still, they still blew them out. Yeah. At the end of the day, the, the same should happen if you take them seriously unlike the likes of UNLV against Eastern Washington, which UNLV is not a very good program right now. And Eastern Washington has uh, Eric, uh, I believe his name's uh, Burry. I can't pronounce, I can never pronounce his name, even though I covered the Big Sky for two years. I can never pronounce his name. A really good quarterback out of Eastern Washington. Athletic, has a huge arm, like you're talking about. If you have the quarterback, the chances go way up. Yeah. And we talked a little bit off recording, but look at Montana, Washington, and how that happened, if you want to get a little bit into that, with another Big Sky team against a then-ranked Power 5 team in Washington. Right, and maybe Washington was a little overrated, but but but, but still, it goes down to Montana having a, a well-coached, disciplined defense, one of the best defenses in the FCS, if not the best. I mean, this is a team that contends in the Big Sky on a yearly basis. Bobby Hawk is a great coach there and, and has them has them ready for everything and you and everything includes washington i frankly i am not surprised that montana beat that washington team i, I would be surprised if simo is anywhere closer than striking distance of mizzou at halftime maybe yeah i i think that that's a good thing and i'm gonna we'll leave it here because we're talking i think about simo leaving even a little too much from mizzou standards to be completely honest but if simo is going to beat missouri even have a chance to beat Missouri, let me put it that way, it'll be evident for like the first three drives. If Missouri does not come out and completely overpower them, like we saw the first drive against Central Michigan, how you know Missouri did well in parts, but then it slowed down. Kind of the exact same with Kentucky, it slowed down eventually. If Missouri has any hesitancy against SEMO, the upset possibility goes up from 0.001%. 
we'll see how quickly that can devolve or completely go away. That's anything else you want to add before we get off the email? Yeah, it's just an easy way to not get upset is to feed the beast when the beast is Tyler Beatty. Yeah. Very, very true. And, and we'll just see how it goes from there. I, I think a little bit that SEMO kind of knows what's coming and they're just ready to get into Ohio Valley Conference play. But if we come to you next week and are all shell-shocked that Southeast Missouri State beat Missouri, you know, we'll go from there. This is not the NCAA tournament. Like, those upsets happen in the NCAA tournament because these are already conference champions, like Abilene Christian beating Texas. Abilene Christian ran through the Southland before getting into the NCAA tournament. Even though Texas should have won that game, it's not like Abilene Christian were slouches. Southeast Missouri State has not proven a thing this year yet. Right. So we'll go from there. So one game outside of the one we're covering this weekend that you really want to watch. Ooh. One that's kind of been piquing my interest the last couple of days is I've been seeing a lot of Twitter chatter about Happy Valley and everybody at Penn State saying, oh, Auburn's not ready. Auburn's not ready for Happy Valley. Oh, they're, they're not ready for, for any of this. And it, to me, it's funny that, that you think that that you think that Penn State the, the environment there matches the same that is that of an SEC environment which I love the Big Ten but to me it's just not the same it's different and to me I, I think Auburn wins that game easily Ooh, that's interesting because Penn State's pretty favored I think I'm pr- I chose them too and I mean we talked about this with Bennett Durando our guest because he's an Auburn writer but I mean Auburn's the mystery team in the SEC it's it's they might come out and absolutely blitz Penn State or they might lay an egg everything's on the table for this team so that'll be really interesting especially with college game day being there i'm looking forward to alabama florida if florida is going to pose a threat in the sec doing the rocky type effort you know just 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 going the distance against alabama is going to be worth it will it happen i don't know but alabama this is their first i don't want to say their first true true test of the year because alabama has played miami in week one before going to fcs level mercer but miami's kind of a former shell of itself florida's definitely a big test and florida's ranked number i think still ranked in the country so we'll see how this kind of happens and we'll see if you know there's any credence to kentucky maybe being a better team than florida if florida can keep up with alabama Missouri might be hoping for fourth at the best, you know, because they're not going to leapfrog. I don't think Kentucky at this point. They're not going to get ahead over Georgia. Third's the best Missouri can do in the SEC East, and they'd probably got to look at Florida as the team they over to as the team they jump to get back into third place. Right. No, I agree with that, and especially if quarter, or, uh, if Florida can solve its quarterback. I know they're going back and forth in the last game. If they can solve that and have a and like you said, play well, play undisciplined, don't commit penalties, play smart, kind of go the distance. It's it's a hard argument to to put Mizzou over that at this point. Anything else you want to talk about? You know, I don't know. Okay, well, we can leave it there this week. We don't have to have a super long episode. I'm cool with that. Yeah, I mean, we talked about Booch's last week. Uh, I don't yeah. know. I, I can't think of any other restaurant to talk about. Okay, well, I'm cool leaving it there. Uh, happy Yom Kippur, Shana Tovah, to any, any, all, all uh, everybody out there. Probably not, not a lot of people understand that reference, but for Eric Blum, but for Eric Blum, listen to me. But for Chris Kwasinski, I've been Eric Blum. Thank you for listening to this week's Mizzou Sports Podcast, and we'll see you next week. going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.